0: We have been reading through Genesis for the last few months, and today we're in Genesis chapter 39. Um, we've turned our attention towards Joseph. Um, he popped up in our story once, um, a little while ago when we found out that his brothers sold him into slavery, and then last week we went to uh, Genesis 38, and we learned about Judah and Tamar, and then we kind of paused there. Well, today we're going back to Joseph, When he was sold into slavery, um, this was from last week, he was 17 years old. I'm just gonna let that simmer for a second so you can kind of let that get inside of you. At 17 years old, he was sold as a slave and he was trafficked over 500 miles away from his home down to Egypt. Now, if you're a parent, you've got a teenager, I want you to imagine what it would be like if you got the news that your child was snatched from your grasp and transplanted as a slave over 500 miles away. And for those of you that are young in here and you remember what it was like when you were 17, or if you're that age now, I want you to imagine what it would be like if that was your life. You had a home, you had a family, you had a dad who loved you, favorited you, And your brothers turned on you and sold you as a slave. And at 17, you ended up as a house slave in somebody's house 500 miles away. That's the story of Joseph. He was away from his home. He was away from his family. He was a slave in a foreign land. But even though all of those things were true, there was something else that was true about Joseph's life. And that is that while he was away from home and his family and as a slave, he prospered. God blessed him and he grew and he matured. Now, the story of Joseph is helpful for us in two main ways. One, because Joseph is a type of Christ, of Jesus. You've got a guy um, who um, left his home, heaven, to come to a foreign land, to redeem a people and save them. That's the gospel. Christ was sent by the Father to come into a foreign land to to redeem his people. He was punished, he was whipped, he was murdered, he rose from the dead for the purpose of salvation. So in Joseph, we see Christ. That's one of the big reasons why we read Joseph is because it helps us digest this, under this idea that God has had a plan for a really, really, really long time, that Jesus was not a backup plan. Jesus was always the only plan. It's always only been Jesus. And as we read these stories, we see cry, uh, God whispering, there's something But You see Joseph? You see, so, see the way that he saved his family? I'm going to send my son, and he's going to save the world. So God has this habit of saying, hey, you see this little thing that happened here? What I'm gonna do is kinda like that, but way bigger and way better. That's essentially what the entire Old Testament is about. God whispering these shadows of things to come, that these ideas, these things that are happening in Israel are only a microcosm of what's gonna happen over the entire world. Redemption's not just for a people, it's for all people, okay? The offer is to all people, anyone who makes a decision to turn and repent. That's the offer. Now, that's one way to look at Joseph. The other way to look at Joseph is the one that I'm going to press in a little harder on today, is this the idea is that Joseph, the way he lived his life can be a model for the way that we live our life. And the reason why I say that is because Joseph grew up from 17 um, until, uh, you know, into his like mid uh, late 20s, early 30s, he grew up in a foreign land, and he made a decision to live in such a way that he prospered and God blessed him in this foreign land, and we are now told from the New Testament that as, as people who have come to Christ, we are now citizens of heaven. We are citizens of a different kingdom. Therefore, we, in a way, are like foreigners living here on earth. This earth is not our home. We're, we're in it, but we're not of it. This idea that while we're here on earth and this place feels kind of like home, it's not really home. Our heart longs to be somewhere else with someone else. We have a better family, we have a better future. Eternity is greater than what we see. Everything around us is kind of just temporary and transient and and foreign to us. And so the way that Joseph lived his life is helpful to us because in the same way we can see how he chose to live in a foreign land and stay faithful to God. Those can be whispers to us on how we can do that. So those are the two big ways that we wanna look at Joseph's life. One, this idea that he's he's a type of Christ and two, he's a model for some of the habits that we should develop in our own life. Does that make sense? Good. So this being particularly helpful for us, um, let's go ahead and start reading the story and learn about what Joseph knew, about way, the way he practices life, about the things that were unique about him, what sustained him, right? Because all you have to do is turn on the news and see uh, protests and riots and anger, and frustration, and then more anger, and a little more frustration on top of that, and then some looting, and then some more rioting. All you see is manifestations of the human heart just breaking, and destroying, and shouting, and being angry. It just, there's no shortage of things to get angry about. And that is because we live like exiles in a foreign land. This is not our home. There's something in, the, in, in our hearts that longs for something better, something different, something greater that only comes through what Christ can do. So what Joseph knew, we want to know. What was the secret? What made this guy so unique that he didn't? Because, because there is no evidence whatsoever in the entire Bible that Joseph ever started complaining or having an attitude or a chip on his shoulder, that any of the things that we're about to talk about in his life really got to him and shifted his eyes off of God. No matter how bad things got, he always kept his eyes fixed on God, in, a, in, in the prison, as a house slave, being betrayed by his own brothers, none of that drew him to complaining and having an attitude. How, how do he do that? Because one, one, I catch one red light at the wrong time, my day's ruined. Are you, are, you, are you with me? Do you follow? All it takes is one, I don't even, a red light, I just need one of my kids to look at me wrong. You, are you with me? It does not take much for us to lose our religion. Do you follow me? So what, what did Joseph know? Why was he so different? I want to know that. And I want to know that so I can practice it. You follow? So let's let's get into it. Genesis, Genesis, Joseph chapter 39. Genesis 39, let's read uh, verse 1 through 10. So this is picking up after the story. After he had been sold into slavery, he uh, made it over 500 miles at 17 down to Egypt. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now that's important. We're gonna come back to that. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of the Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him So, this idea that the Lord was with him is starting to become very repetitious. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph knew the Lord was with him, but those were the only people that knew what was going on. Other people could see it. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. I'm assuming that's because he's a 17-year-old boy. Anybody ever raise a 17-year-old boy? You're very concerned about the food that they eat. Because that's all your disposable income is just going to that. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That's interesting because that's only referenced about him and his mother. Nobody else in the Bible is described as being handsome in form and in appearance. So this dude was like, he was handsome and he was cut, right? And you don't always get both. You get one or the other, but he had both. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, that's not like, let's sit around and say, hey, the sky's red. Let's say things that aren't true this is lie with me. Like, let's go to bed together. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house. And he's put me, uh, he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not, uh, he is not greater in the house than I am for he has kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. So how then can I do this great wicked sin against God? How can I sin against him? How can I sin against the character and the the trust he's given me? And how can I sin against my God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. He would not lie beside her. And he would not be with her. Now, let's go back to um, uh, setting the scene up at the beginning of this. I want you to imagine Joseph at 17 entering into Egypt. And I I want you to kind of just grasp for a minute the culture shock he probably had. Because Egypt was a place of foreign gods. Egypt is always in the Bible used as a shadow or a type of the world and the world's systems. Because in Egypt, really anything goes. There was a God for everything. People were waking up early in the morning and making sacrifices to the gods just so that their fields... uh, Um, would produce crops. They would make sacrifices to God just so that the bread that they were baking um, would be, uh, you know, bountiful. Everything that was in this entire culture was, was revolved around this idea of foreign gods. And when Joseph comes into town, the assumption is, Um, Joseph, we're not going to listen to anything you have, like we're not taking notes on where you're from and what you think should be going on. We completely um, assume that you're going to assimilate into our culture. We don't care about your dad or your Hebrew culture or the fact that you believe in one God. You're coming to our house and you're going to assimilate into our culture. So Joseph comes to Egypt and he is essentially, um, in, in a very similar way to the, the way Daniel was kind of brought into Babylon, like, we're going to school you in the ways of Egypt. And this indoctrination started the moment he showed up to the way he dressed, to the way he lived, even as a house slave. He is a, the assumption is you are going to be an Egyptian. You are no longer a Hebrew. You, you are of this world, not from where you are. We bought you out of that. That's not you anymore. This is you now. So he comes in as a 17-year-old kid and he's, he's exposed to these rituals, essentially like the best way to say it is just darkness. And he's sold into Potiphar's house as a family slave and he starts receiving these sexual advances from his master's wife. Now the thing about that, if you go back and you read some historical writings, this was actually commonplace in Egypt and at the time of the antiquities for house slaves to be shared among the family in sexual ways. And the funny thing about this is that um, if you go back and you read about Joseph's family, like his dad, his dad did the same thing. His dad had four wives. Two of them were actually the women that he married, and two of them were the slaves of his wives. So this was a thing that was normal for Joseph. He watched his dad do this. He goes to a foreign land where this is a a common thing for house slaves to be treated like this, he makes reference to the fact that he assumes that his master would not have wanted this. So he, even though that this is a common thing for him and for this culture, his master asked not to this and he chose to respect it. So what he's doing essentially is he's saying, I'm going to honor the convictions that my master, even though, he's, even though he's not a follower of the one true God, he's asking things of me and to be a good follower of God, I'm going to follow those things. Are, are you following me? Because Paul talks about this a lot in the New Testament. The idea that we are under a lot of ungodly rulers, and there are things that you will have to do in order to follow the law, in order to keep the peace. Like, as Christians, we're, not suppo- we're, we're the kind of people, we're expected to be living peacefully among the, con- or the, the, the community that we're called to, right? That's what Paul tells us to do. Live peacefully. There is a there is a line that we cannot cross, and that is I am supposed to be a good American, and I am supposed to be a good Christian. But there are some times where being a good American means I am a bad Christian and therefore then I can't be a good American. Do you follow? But until that line is crossed, we are expected to be able to follow the rulers that we're told God has set up over us. And this is the mindset that Joseph is operating in. He's in a foreign land. He's been asked not to cross this line. And he says, I'm not going to cross it. Even though this is a normal thing and everybody does it, I'm not going to cross it. That's his conviction. Now, the interesting thing about Joseph is this conviction, it had to have come from somewhere. And I would argue that it didn't come from his dad, okay? His dad had very little self-control. His dad was a deceiver. It certainly didn't come from his brothers. Like Genesis 38, Judah, we just talked about this last week. Like sexual restraint doesn't run in Joseph's family. So where did this come from? Where did this conviction to say, I'm going to make a stand and not cross it. Where did that come from? Why is Joseph filled with such conviction and morals? Why was he so different than his brothers and his father and the culture that he was being immersed in? I think the answer lies in verse two, which is why I called it out while we were reading it. I'm going to read it one more time. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph. Now, this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, is repeated again in verse 3. It's repeated again in verse 21 and in verse 23 at the end. And the idea is that God was with Joseph. Joseph knew that God was with him, and everyone else knew that God was with Joseph. But the thing is, is that most modern interpretations, when you read that, the assumption that we go to, our understanding of what this means, is that, well, yeah, Joseph was blessed. God was with him in like a favor form, so that everything that god t- or Joseph touched, God blessed through joseph. that's what that means God was with him now that is true there is an, a, a, in the sense we talked last week of God working in and through people. that is true, but I believe that the 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 the, um, the thing that Moses who wrote Genesis, is trying to get across to us is the same thing that Jesus talked about in John 15 four when he says, "I want you to." abide in me and I in you. To read the Lord was with Joseph and just assume that all that means is that God kind of followed Joseph around everywhere and everything he touched just turned to gold, I think is an unbelievably shallow way of reading into that. I think that what this really means, the Lord was with Joseph, is this idea that Joseph lived with a conscious awareness that God was with him physically, not like standing next to me, but this conscious awareness that it doesn't matter where I go or what I do or what I put my hands to, God is here with me. He is present. He is not foreign. I'm not on a vacation. He's not in heaven and I'm down here and he's going to check in on me from time to time. No, he's literally going with me as I go along. And the reason why is because I'm abiding in him and he is abiding in me. When, the, when, when it says the Lord was with Joseph, that implies a relationship that Joseph had with the Lord, and that's where the convictions and the morals come from. He lived in the presence of God, and therefore everywhere he went, the presence of God was there. And also, he would not go to places unless he knew the presence of God was there. It's this relationship that Jesus talks about when he says abide, that, that you are just, you are in the, the presence of God and that everywhere you go, God is free to, to work through you and in you. And so as you're, you're over here, and the, the beauty of what this does is it eliminates our concept of like, well, this is a holy place and this is a secular place. So God can do things over here at church but he can't do things over here at work. It blows that out of the water because what it says is no oh, no the only reason why church is is unique and special is because God is there. And God is in you, and He's working through you. And therefore, if that's true, then then church is not the only place that God can work. He can work in your home. He can work um, out on the lake while you're fishing. He can work at work. He can work in the pickup line while you're waiting to pick up your kids, and you're just listening to a podcast. You're reading. Read, you just crack your Bible open and you read for a couple, uh, you know, couple minutes while you have some free time. Uh, that's what that means. This idea that I'm living with a conscious awareness that everywhere I go, God's presence is here. I'm in it. He in me, we are one just like him and the Father are one. Do you get that? Now that's huge. That's really, really important. And the reason why it's really important is because this awareness gave Joseph the ability to accomplish some things that seem almost unnatural, peculiar, and probably not how we would have responded to situations. And this is one of them. Why is it that Joseph, having not seen his father model um Um, holiness, not seeing his brothers model it, having no reference for what that looks like. Why is it his immediate response is, no, I can't cross that line. Because he doesn't want to cross a line of sin knowing that God is here watching me. How would you act in private when when you're alone and nobody else is around? What decisions would you make differently if you started living with a conscious awareness that God's watching me right now because he's with me right now? What would you do differently with your spare time? with your thought life, if you really truly believe what the Bible says that he'll never leave us or forsake us, he's always with us, what does that do for us at the conviction level if we really believe that what he says is true? Well, for Joseph, I'm not gonna cross that line even though I watched everybody else model that for me. I'm not gonna cross it because like, don't you see him? God's here. I'm not gonna do that in front of God. It's embarrassing. Well, can God go to the other room? No, that's not how it works. Because he's here with me all the time. He's always here, and therefore there's no no time where I'm going to cross that line because he's always with me. He's always watching. And that awareness dictates the decisions that I make. But it doesn't stop there, and we'll see this as it picks up. This awareness sharpened his character in all that he did. When he did his job, he did it as unto the Lord. That's why he was so good. That's the reason why why, why Potiphar said, well, you can be in charge of everything except for the food. I'll give you charge over everything because I trust you. Because when you do it, it's, it's almost like you're not doing it for a paycheck. It's almost like you're doing it as unto somebody else that has more power and authority than me watching you and making sure that you're doing a good job. That's why his character was unmatched. This awareness allowed him to um, say no to sin, it allowed him to work with courage, it allowed him to be a blessing to everybody around him. Because when you live like that, it doesn't matter who you come in contact with, they're gonna receive the residuals of that stuff dripping off of you. When you live a life of conviction, I don't cross those lines, guess what? People who get into business with you, they get blessed because you're doing things God's way and you sow what you reap. So this is rubbing off on other people around him, and this awareness also allowed him to persevere through trials and tribulations. This truth, this one truth, is the thing that allowed him to persevere through some of the darkest periods of his life. Now, I just want to say this really quick. There, there are some truths in the Bible that when, when they smack you in the face, they get down so deep in your bones that they change everything. And I'm convinced that this is one of those truths. So the idea, the, the truth is as simple as this. God is here now. God is with you now. And that seems like, well, yeah, we all know that, but do you really? Do you know it in a way where it's changing the way you live and the way you think about stuff and the way you talk to people and the way you spend your money and the way you set up your calendar dates? Do you really truly believe that? Because I I think if we did, things would look very different in a lot of our lives. The idea is that we know it, but we don't really, hasn't gotten in here and start affecting out here. There's a thing that we know, but there's, but but it hasn't Permeated who we are and started changing the way that we like where we point our toes and what direction we walk. Because if this is one of those truths, the guy, the the idea that God is with us, then it should give us the same kind of courage it gave Joseph. It should sharpen our character. It should make us a blessing to people around. It should help us persevere. It should be like a, a lens, like like glasses. Some of you in here, you have great eyesight. Praise God, I'm so happy for you. But some of these who don't, when you put those glasses on, like, oh, now I can see. You take them off, you're like, I see men walking and they look like trees. It's just a bunch of blur, but you put it, oh, Marshall. <laughs> the idea that, <laughs> it's like, that's, that's my wife. She puts his glasses on. You just look like a big brown blur. Oh, that's my husband. The idea is that things look one way without the lens, and the moment you put them on, things look completely different. This is one of those truths, that if you can wrap your head around this and let it get on the inside of you and start bearing fruit, then everything else that happens to you will start changing. And if there was ever a message that we needed, it's this one right now. Because if you think that the trials and the tribulations that we've gone through for the first like nine months of this, of this year have, have, are starting to kind of slow down, I got bad news for you. This train is not slowing down. We have established social norms now that will carry us the next time, oh, there's a, there's a scary flu season, we need to start reacting this way. We have now proved, whether we liked it or not, That some of your bosses who've told you you can't do your job from home, (laughs) well, guess what? Now you can. You can't back that truck up. Once you let somebody work from home in their pajamas, good luck getting them to come back into the office. (laughs) Amen? Come on. The point is, is that nothing, like we're moving forward and we're not going back. Things are going to look different. Things are, things are massively, so, so the the desire in your heart, if we could just get back to the way it was, like, you're going to have to watch the Andy Griffith show to have those memories, because they're not going to be in real life. We're not going back to that. What we're moving forward is, is, is the, the mission field that God has called us to, and the faster you get equipped and prepare your heart for what is in front of you, the less you can start being afraid and worrying about what we've already passed by. And this is one of those truths that will equip you, because as Joseph increased in tribulation, and Jesus promises us, hey, every day that you kind of inch closer to my return, guess what's going to happen? Things are going to start increasingly falling apart. They're going to get worse, and there's going to be increase in tribulations and rumors of wars and famines. So we're like, well, I don't like any of that. He's just like, well, I know, but I'll walk through it with you. See, the promise is never that you come to Christ and everything's peachy that your life is perfect, that's not the promise. The promise is that in the middle of all of that, you're not alone. In the middle of that, he is here, now, with you. His presence is here, with you. That's the promise. You don't get a beautiful life now, you get that later. What you get now is Him. You inherit Him, His presence, Him right now. That's what Joseph knew, and if we can wrap our heads around that, guess what we will stop being afraid of? Whatever news report comes out. Whatever, whatever Russia is doing, or whatever the media says that the, the, this president is doing, or this the, this person who's running for president is doing, or what this local election—oh, there's a there, there's another riot over here, or there's another um, uh, you know a protest about here. There, like, there's no shortage of any of that stuff happening in the world, and there's no sign of that slowing down. So what do, what what is our comfort? The comfort is in the middle of that. We get Jesus. We get Him. And some of us, our hearts are like, well, that's not enough. And that's a sign that there's something fundamentally broken in your heart, that what you're hungry for isn't really Jesus. It's a fake version of Christianity that somebody sold you and you purchased. But it's not the treasure hidden in the field that required you to sell all that you own just to get that field, just to get him. Joseph knew this, and this is why his life was different. So what happens... Is he comes back and Potiphar starts making advances to him. Now, the advances that he makes, or she makes in his response, I think is probably the best advice ever on how we can deal with sin. This is really important for us. Because when you look at Miss Potiphar as the personification of temptation, we find how we're supposed to respond to temptation. Now, I don't want to do the typical, like, well, you know, these sins are the things you struggle with. I just ask you this question. If you struggle with gossip, if that's your thing, reading the life of Joseph gives you clues on how to um, turn away and not let that thing rule you. If if gossip is your thing, then you need to stop listening to it. You need to stop lying beside it, and you need to stop finding ways to be with it. And for some of you, that, that means exactly what it means. You need to deactivate Facebook. Because it is your primary um, well of gossip. Let that sit there for a second. I, you got into this thing because you want to share baby pictures and you want to be connected with your aunts and uncles who are on the other side of the country. Right? And now all you do all day long is just stay mad at news articles that aren't even real. That was shared by some... Bought in Europe crafted in a way to manipulate you and anger you and guess what? It's working. It's working. So the idea that if, if, if lust is your thing if envy is your thing the best thing you could possibly do is don't listen to it don't lie next to it don't be with it. Romans 13, 14 says make no provisions for the flesh. Don't stockpile Things that will make it easier for you to indulge in that nonsense when you're feeling low or alone or tired or weak. You follow? All right, let's pick it up in verse 11. It says, but one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house and she caught him by the garments saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hands and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that she had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household saying, see... He has brought, he has, so the master, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to laugh at me. That, That idea of laughing is essentially mockery. That he came to take advantage of her in a sexual way, to humiliate her, that's what that means. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoke, this is the way that your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisons were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. The Lord was with Joseph in prison. showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Well, that's probably not the job he wanted. like Assistant to prisoners in prison. I'm assistant prisoner. You're assistant to the prisoners. But what was done there, he, he, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. So he probably could have escaped since no one was paying attention to him, but he didn't take advantage of that. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to succeed. So Joseph was falsely accused and he's placed in prison, but his awareness that God is here was present in prison too. And because of it, God blessed the guards through his character, and Joseph only grew in his awareness of God. Now, this is a really important point, because it shows the truth that I'm trying to argue here is applicable in every situation. The idea that God is here is not locked to a geographical location. God is not at a spot. He is with his people, and wherever his people are, that's where he is, which means that you can be in the palace or in the prison and God is with you. That's important. It's important to know that a truth is not hinging on where you are because a lot of the places you go, go is not where you need to be. You make really bad decisions and you end up in places that you don't belong. You like, well, God, how did I get here? Well, because of this bad decision and this bad decision. This is how you got here, but, but guess what? I'm with you, and I'll walk you out of this. It seems so simple, but the idea that God being with you in the lowest points of your life should give enough comfort to determine and direct the way that you act while you're there. Because what we find in Joseph is that while he's in prison, he's not complaining about it. In fact, in the very next chapter, when the other other prisoners start talking to him um, about dreams that they have, his immediate response is to start talking about God. So we know that God is on his mind, and that's what he's thinking about while he's here in this place. It's easy for us to talk about God while we're sitting in a church house, but it's not so easy to talk about God when you're at work. Or you were in a car on the way to some kind of conference with some coworkers that you're not really familiar with. So certain, some, You just kind of start dialing back some of the speech. You don't talk the same way in front of other people because you're not really sure how they're going to take it. This idea that God is with us no matter where we go should bring us some kind of comfort because some of the places we go is not where God wants us anyway, but he's with us through it. So Joseph knew that God was with him in Prison, and this idea should be helpful to us. Because when you're low, when you're in the lowest place of your life, if this truth is true, then you don't need a high to get through it. And we're convinced when we get to a low place, what would make us feel better is if we got to a high place, if I could just change my attitude, if I could, change, if I could just change my circumstances or my situation, if I could just change some things about what's happening to me, then I would be better. That's not the biblical prescription for how things change. Things don't change, what you're looking at changes. So the idea is spend less time worrying about fixing the situation around you and spend more time looking at God in the situation you're in right now. Spend less time in prayer, God, get me out of this. And spend more time praying, God, let me see you in this. That's what Joseph is teaching us. The goal is not to look for a new season. The goal is to look at God in this season. Now in verse, in chapter 40, what happens is he is um, now in prison uh, or, well, not in prison this entire time. From the time that he was taken um, as a slave to the point that he is now in prison has been 11 years. So it's been 11 years since he was taken into slavery. So 11 years of his life, he's lived as a slave or, or in prison. We don't know what point he was thrown in prison. It might have been very shortly after he lived in Potiphar's house. He might have lived six years in Potiphar's house and then thrown in prison. But a period of 11 years has passed since him being a slave and, and, and now living in prison. He's now 20 years old and he's in prison with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And one night they have a dream and it disturbs them. And I just want to read Joseph's response from chapter 40, verse 8, when they wake up and they have these very disturbing dreams. Verse 8 in chapter 40, it says, They said to him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Without skipping a beat, Joseph responds, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. What does that one sentence tell us? It tells us that Joseph is thinking about God while he's in prison. And it also tells us that Joseph's chief desire is that he wants other people around him thinking about God while he's in prison. So it doesn't matter if he's in a house or he's in prison or he's back with his family or he's in the palace where he's gonna end up in the next chapter. It doesn't matter what his circumstances are, his eyes are always fixed on God. He is aware that God is with him no matter where he is. Now the cupbearer's dream is interesting the cupbearer says, okay, well, I had this dream, and in the dream, um, a vine with three branches uh, um, came up out of it, and from the branches um, were these bursting grapes. And then I took the grapes, and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I served them to him, and he drank the wine. And Joseph says, oh, I got that the interpretation. That's easy. In three days, you're going to be restored to your position. And cup, the, the, the cup, cupbearer's like, all right, cool. And he only makes one request. He's like, when you get in front of Pharaoh again, don't forget about me. Let him know what I said and what I did. Please just don't forget about me. And I can imagine that the baker sitting next to him, he starts feeling a little confident. He's like, oh, that was a pretty good interpretation. Maybe I I can get my blessing right now. Hey, Joseph, I got a dream too. So what does he say? He tells him the dream. He says, I had this dream where there were three cake baskets sitting on my head. And the very top one was filled with all kinds of baked goods. But there were a bunch of birds like flying in it and eating the stuff out of the basket on top of my head. And Joseph, without skipping a beat, he says, well, what that means is that in in three days, uh, Pharaoh's going to lift your head off of your body. He's going to kill you and decapitate you and put your head on display. I can't imagine the baker's like, "Uh, are you sure there's not like another... Could it mean something different? (laughs) Well, three days later, the dreams came true and the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. As Soon as the cupbearer was out of his situation, he was not thinking about the guy that helped him get out of it. He was back in Pharaoh's situation uh, or or presence and completely forgot about Joseph. And we're told that Joseph stayed in prison for another two years. Imagine that for Joseph. he's in prison for another two years. But what's interesting is that those two years in prison weren't wasted. Psalm 105.19 tells us that until what God said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested Joseph. So those two years, God ordained and made Joseph walk through for the purpose of sharpening Joseph for the palace. Because it is one thing to say no to one Miss Potiphar, but it is quite something completely different to say no to a hundred Miss Potiphar's. And that's what was coming his way when he arose to the palace. Because the truth is, is that um, it's easy to hide your character flaws and sin in a prison when nobody's watching you. But when you arise to leadership and you're responsible for leading people, all eyes are on you and the stakes are higher. And things that you thought were not a big deal suddenly become a huge deal because other people's lives are in your hands and more is at stake. And this is what I was talking about last week when Jesus is talking about this principle that teachers will be held in higher regard. People who have influence over other people will be held in a much higher regard. Uh, will be held to a much higher standard than those who do not have influence over other people. Which is interesting, because I had a conversation with my son last week about this. He was asking me about how this kind of works out. He was asking me if this is something that's just kind of within the church and like Bible teachers. And I said, I think that's, Jesus, I think that's what Jesus meant, that primarily the religious leaders. But I think that that's probably a spiritual principle that will have uh, impacts uh, much more down the road. And, and he asked, he said, um, do you think that that would apply to uh, people who consider themselves like influencers on YouTube and Instagram? People with like a half a million teenagers following them. Do you think that they will be accountable for who they led and what they taught and what they said was important? And without skipping a beat, I said, absolutely. I believe that they will be held accountable for things that they treated as frivolous and not a big deal. Because what's happening is that one person who has access to a camera and a YouTube account can now shift the conversation and the attention of an entire generation. And that kind of power will be judged. People will be held accountable for what they did with what they had. So it's no small thing for Joseph to be sitting in prison for another two years to be perfected. Because when you're dealing with people, it's a whole nother ball game. And I'll, there's a lot of small business owners in this church. And you, you know that principle. Got a lot of parents in this church. You know this principle. A lot of managers in here. You're in charge of people. You know what it means to help have other people's lives that you are responsible for and accountable for. So Joseph remained in prison. But in that period, his awareness of God only grew. Now that brings us to Genesis 41, Genesis 41, one through eight. This says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all of the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, and not a single one of them could interpret them to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh had two dreams, and both of them had this number seven, and nobody could interpret what the dreams meant. And it's at this point in verse 9, the cupbearer remembers Joseph and says, I made a mistake. This guy that I was in prison with, he's really good at interpreting dreams. You should bring him in and let him listen to it, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh brings in Joseph, and without missing a beat, Joseph interprets the dream. And he says, the dream, the seven cows, the seven ears, that's seven years. God is showing you that Egypt is going to have seven years of plenty and harvest, and then he's going to have seven years of extreme famine. So what you need to do, Pharaoh, is you need to appoint somebody in your leadership structure to make sure that all the stuff we take in during the plenty years can last us through the lean years because when the famine hits, Egypt's gonna be the only one with any resources and everyone's gonna come to us. And this is Pharaoh's response when he hears Joseph's interpretation and his advice. This is verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride second chariot. They called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, "I'm Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in the land of Egypt." And Pharaoh called his name Zaphanath Panea, and he gave him in marriage to Asanath, the daughter of Potapherrah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh. Head of Egypt was pleased with Joseph because Joseph knew God was with him Pharaoh saw it and he promoted him to second in command but he didn't just do that he changed his name and he gave him an Egyptian wife Now this is important because what's happened is a 17-year-old kid who was a slave and a prisoner is now the vice president over Egypt He went from being betrayed by his own family, to being falsely accused, to spending um, over two years in prison, to now being the second in command over all of Egypt. Praise God to the providence of God. What a testimony of God's faithfulness and encouragement for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. But there's one final anecdote to the story. Joseph 41 excuse me, Genesis, I did it again. Genesis chapter 41, verses 50 through 52, we're told that he had children with this Egyptian wife. And he named them Manasseh and Ephraim. So follow me. Joseph was in Egypt. He was given an Egyptian name. He had an Egyptian wife. He had an Egyptian job. But when he had children, He named them Manasseh and Ephraim, and those are not Egyptian names. Those are Hebrew names. Manasseh and Ephraim are Hebrew names. The point being is that you can put Joseph in Egypt, but you can't put Egypt in Joseph. You can put a man in this culture, but this man is not of this culture. You can put this man in this world and Make this man follow all of the rules and the guidelines and the edicts and things that are put in place that reflect the culture of this world and this world not get in the heart of this man. That's the story of Joseph. Now at the beginning of the message, this is where we're gonna finish. I told you that Joseph was a type of Christ. Joseph came to a foreign land to save God's people and Christ would come to a fallen world to save the people of the world. But the other application there is that Joseph lived in a foreign land without letting that land get inside of him. And we're called to respond the same way. So this is the takeaway from today's message. This is what I want to leave you with. This is the invitation for you to respond to this one simple truth. This is all I want you to think about today. God is with us. God is here now. Now that reality, if you let it sink into your heart, will help you persevere some of the lowest trials and tribulations that you are currently in or may be coming your way It will sustain you in moments of temptation towards sin. It will sharpen your character when you are at your job or when you are supposed to be responsible for things. And it will also flow on to other people around you. All of it is rooted in the same awareness. God is with me right now. He's not absent. He's present. Let's pray.